how that conversation has blossomed to what we see today and this week, and that we're having a classic conversation. Only God can do what God has done through this conference in a short amount of time. So we thank your brother for being, uh, being obedient. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to jump right in. I'm going to, they're going to ask, answer these questions in a way that hopefully helps you to uh, have preaching that will build a healthy church wherever you serve. The first one I want to ask, I want to ask to both of you guys, uh, in a world, in a generation that constantly asks how or why, you know, so like, what am, I, what am I going to do with this information? So you take a text, you understand it, you explain it, you get the points. So then they want to know, okay, that's great, you know, God, Jesus turned water into the wine, how can that help me today pay, pay my bills or get through my marriage, things of that nature. So how do we uh, adequately apply application in our preacher, the importance of application. That's Dr. Didway's wheelhouse. That's <laughs> well, I, I'm really, I'm convinced there is an applicational focus in virtually every text of Scripture, if only we look for it. Uh, I mean, scripture is given to, for us to know God and to be able to obey Him to, to be able to, to do something with that truth, not just to, not just to bear, bury it away, but to be able to act on, script, on uh, the truth of Scripture. And so uh, I, I'm convinced that uh, if, you hear me, if you were to hear me preach, you will hear really what I would call an applicational exposition. So the, um, with Scripture, uh, so that the sermon... Uh, tip, on a typical sermon for me, every major point of the sermon is a, is a statement of application. But it's application drawn from the text, and that's where it's important. You know, application, it's, application is not adequate if it's simply me sitting around thinking, now, what could I do with this? What application needs to do in an expository preaching framework is to be drawn from the Scripture. What is the Scripture telling us we can do? With this, and that's, and that's why we exegete the text, so that we can understand what's going on, what's God trying to tell us in this text, and then what is it helping us understand that we do uh, with this particular text. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, in this, in uh, particularly in the culture we live in, as Tyrese said, in a culture when people are, you know, they're not, they're not coming to church with their giant study Bible and a legal pad, wanting you to give them. Uh, you know, lots of notes. Uh, in fact, I think David Jeremiah was the one that said, uh, people don't need more notes. They need to know what God's telling them to do in Scripture. And so that's why I think application has so central to uh, expository pre to, to any kind of preaching, but in particular uh, expository preaching that draws truth from the text itself. I, I, we joked over there that I said, all I'm going to say today is, I agree with Dr. Didway on this, <laughs> but let me say I agree with him completely on this. I think uh, when Doc came to preach for us, I asked him about what he, his working definition of preaching was, and I'm, I think you were working through a book then, and you talked about the anointed application of the biblical text, um, and that has stuck with me since that time and that conversation. Um, I think it's also the heritage of uh, Miles Jones, uh, who spoke about preaching for behavioral modification. Uh, and so the difference between a Bible study and a sermon is that a study, you should leave knowing something. A sermon, you should leave doing something. Uh, the idea is that, and I, you know, I, I teach our associates and when I teach preaching in other settings, to have a sentence in your sermon, especially as you're starting out or perhaps as you're making transitions and wanting your church to grab uh, how significant application is, as much as you have a proposition statement or thesis statement or take-home truth, uh, there should also be an objective, a clear objective. At St. Mark now, we put that on the screen. This, as a result of listening to today's sermon, you should do this. Pray more, give more, forgive somebody, put your left shoe on your left foot, whatever it is, um, we want you to, there's something you should be doing as a result of listening to this sermon. Um, and and the, the ear, it should have always been tuned to that, but today I think it is more tuned, uh, not 
again, to Dr. Didway's point, we don't want to violate the God-intended meaning of that passage to do. I learned a term in Arkansas called Benwana, uh, like some my Benwana say. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm not, I'm not using applications for my Benwanas at my church. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm using application to, um, to tell people that something this text is calling us to do in terms of behavioral modification um, and, and, the, and the pew will tune in for that. Um, the Bible is not relevant, or does not need to be made relevant. I mean, it is relevant. Uh, and it's our job to show, demonstrate, and explain the rev relevance of the scripture uh, to the people that we preach to, especially those of us who have the privilege to preach to people every week. Dr. Dilway, this is your question. Dr. Pointer, we would love to have your input if you have any. But Dr. Dilway, you uh, did a season where you were as an interim pastor at North Anderson in Anderson, South Carolina. So with the question of building a healthy church, how did you view your weekly assignment knowing you wouldn't be there 5, 10, 15, 20 years? So how did you uh, frame those sermons for a temporary situation? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I spent about a year and a half at a, a church in our area as the interim pastor. They needed a long interim. They had a, I was, came in after somebody that retired after 30 years. And uh, with a long pastorate like that, church needs so just some time to step back and reflect. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, revision, you know, who they are, where, what they need to be doing, where they are, uh, where they need to be. And so um, I do a lot of itinerant preaching, which is where you go one, you know, one time and then uh, did the interim, which was a year and a half. I, I must admit, I really enjoy the interim uh, was uh, was telling somebody earlier that the joy of an interim is uh, you have the consistency of a single congregation. So week by week, you have an opportunity to to speak to speak into their lives, to invest in them, to uh, be able to watch them kind of grow, develop, respond. And if they get mad, you can walk away. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but, you know, that I enjoyed, for example, when you're doing itinerant preaching, uh, sometimes you write a new sermon, but often it's easier simply to use something that you've done before, and that's okay. Both of those are legitimate. Uh, the, the beauty of an interim is uh, you can only so long depend on what you've done before. And so um, I enjoyed the discipline of getting back into weekly sermon preparation. Uh, which you just, if you're doing only itinerant preaching, you don't, you don't tend to have that. So, uh, you know, through the week, I was thinking about, praying about what I was going to do. And then on Saturday, I'd sit down Saturday morning and, and write out the, you know, write out my manuscript, write out my notes I was going to do. And so that, that's part of the joy of that. But as you're, uh, as you're preaching in a setting like that, that you know that is going to be an extended time, but not you know, lengthy, not years and years. Um, in an interim situation, what I, one of the things I thought was important was to help them, uh, through Scripture, think about what the church is and who they needed to be as a church. You know, what, what was their role in the kingdom? And so I preached uh, some, some vision messages, preached from Nehemiah and things like that. And then we preached through the book of Acts. Um, I, as far as I'm concerned, even in an in a interim situation, uh, preaching through books, you can do some themes and then some uh, preaching through books. And so I did the, went through the book of Acts with them. I thought that was particularly appropriate, helping them rethink uh, what they are as a church, who they, who they ought to be, and what they ought to be doing uh, as a church. So uh, I envy you. Uh, who are pastoring churches on an ongoing basis because you have that opportunity on a consistent basis to be able to, to invest into the life of a single congregation, uh, to be able to watch how God works in their lives, how God uses you uh, in, in, as a preacher uh, to be able to speak into the lives of people and to watch what God does through that proclamation. Dr. Pointer preached in Africa Monday. He preached in Mexico Tuesday. No, that's not, <laughs> that's not true. He's in Athens today, and then he'll be at St. Mark's Sunday. <laughs> so, Dr. Pointer, in, the, in your constant travel, how do you 
take the time to sometimes, you know, this is a sermon for the road, so to speak, or this is a sermon for St. Mark. How do you go through that process? So every sermon is a St. Mark sermon for me. I, um, having been graced to have opportunities to do itinerant ministering as a, uh, as a um, supplement to my pastoral ministry, uh, St. Mark is who I'm writing for. Sometimes, some sermons that I have written for St. Mark, they can be adjusted and they can work in an itinerant circumstance. Um, I generally do not write for the road unless it's a preacher's conference or a pastor's anniversary. Uh, but if you hear me on the road, that's a sermon that has been preached at St. Mark. Uh, my primary responsibility, Dr. Didway just spoke to it, is to develop um, the body life, cast vision, make disciples, do ministry uh, in proclamation and in incarnational ministry uh, at the local context that God has called me to. So they get it first, and generally speaking, they get it best. Um, and then something of that begins to be shaped for, for itinerant circumstances and opportunities. Um, but yeah, I, I can't tell you, outside of, a, outside of a preacher's conference, pastor's conference, outside of a pastor's anniversary, I can't tell you the last time I wrote a sermon for the road. Um, now, if I'm in a room full of preachers, I can tell you, you know, we, we, we do preach the same sermon again. Uh, so it evolves, um, it can grow, illustrations can change, introductions can be adjusted, and so sometimes you'll hear something on the road that has been preached a few times and has a, a little bit more spit shine on it and polish uh, because it's been run a few times, uh, but the, the sermon itself uh, is a St. Mark sermon that other people are then getting subsequently. And I, I, to that end, you know, you talk about the interim pastor uh, assignment that Dr. Didway just uh, completed. Um, my grandfather, who we lost at the end of last year, would say to me, uh, Philip, we're all interim pastors. It's just a matter of how long your tenure is as the interim. Uh, and what you should always be doing is preaching so that the next pastor has a better church when that person gets there than you inherited when you got there. And so that's the, that's the intent of my preaching at St. Mark. And could I, if I could add one more thing, Dr. Pointer pointed, talk, pointed out um, this idea of you, that you will often use a sermon again that you've used before. Uh, hey, if it's good enough to preach once, it's good enough to preach again. <laughs> um, but that is one of the reasons that I, as I tell my students, the, one of the values of a manuscript. Uh, not, not, that you, not that you necessarily are going to stand in the pulpit and preach from the manuscript. You, some, some do and do it very well. Uh, but the fact that you have that, that you've taken the time to, to think through what you're going to say and then develop that manuscript means that two years from now, when you are going to, uh, uh, to be preaching and this particular message uh, is an appropriate one for that setting, you don't have to try to remember. I can look back at some of my early sermon notes uh, as, a, uh, as a young preacher. Uh, believe it or not, they're yellow with age, but they're, they're still there. And uh, a couple of times, I you know, would come across them where I'd say, dog story. <laughs> Lord help me, I have no idea what the dog story <laughs> I'm sure it was a really good one, but uh, I have no idea. And so if I had just written down, you know, the dog story, uh, I would be able to look back on it and, and do that. So there is, there is just real value in crafting that manuscript. Uh, now, once you step into the pulpit, whether you use that, whether you make notes from it, whether you go without notes, you still have gone through the precision of developing the way uh, the Lord's going to have you present that particular biblical truth. I, I do want to give a practical uh, addendum to that for, for those who are intimidated by the manuscript. There are apps like Rev, um, places that um, that will transcribe your, there's, the app is called Rev if you look at it and for a certain number of pennies per 
minute or something like that. They'll transcribe it for you. Uh, the, the great, marvelous, super clean manuscripts we have of Spurgeon are not his original manuscripts. His wife, Susanna, transcribed the sermon, and then he would edit it. <laughs> so what we have in Spurgeon was so eloquent and clean are the edited versions of what he presented at, at Metropolitan Tabernacle. So um, there, there are so many ways, but cataloging um, and, and the crafting, uh, the continual crafting of sermons. My dad would say that a sermon is a seed that should grow and develop, and once you've preached it, the problem is the plant doesn't stop growing. Uh, there's still more fruit uh, that can be uh, harvested at a later time. And so I think to that end, it is very, very critical that we keep those, those um, catalogs of ministry through the years. If I were to have a conversation with Dr. Dare Hall, and I would say, Dr. Hall, have you heard Dr. Philip Horner, or have you heard Dr. Michael Didway? They will immediately go to YouTube or go to your website, find out where you are, and they will listen to you. So many times we learn from watching people on YouTube, right? And I don't, I'm not saying anything is wrong with that, but I gotta ask this question to you guys. What's the benefit of having the discipline of sitting in a classroom in a seminary fashion and going to seminary and learning how to develop your gift of preacher? Ooh, yeah, so listen. I mean, school can't give you shoes, it shines shoes. Um, you have to be called by God to do this. Uh, and so there is no school that can make you a preacher. What school does is develop whatever it is God has given you. And I am of the opinion that academic rigor in our day is vital to preach to the people in our pews or to the people in the club or on the street or wherever your ministry is, nursing home, wherever your ministry is. Um, there is a way, there is access in some way to a disciplined, regimented process. It does a couple of things in my mind. I've, I think one, um, the discipline is sanctifying to you. To sit in the classroom, to submit, to have someone tell you what you think is A is a C paper <laughs> or a C sermon, um, that, that that's sanctifying in, 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 in strange ways. Um, I, I think that, I think it also demonstrates a faithfulness to development. And one of my mantras, I, I tell St. Mark this, I tell my children this more especially, we give God something to bless. You know, give God something to bless. I was pastoring before seminary. Um, and so... Um, had a church. God has blessed it. We were growing, doing, doing pretty well. Um, and then to develop, submit it to the rigor. And it was through that process. And this is just not that you go to school to get a church, but it's through that process that St. Mark comes to find me through that, through my doctoral process, other doors open, things of that nature. It, it's, it's sanctifying and it's just giving God something to bless. And yes, you can study on your own, and you very well should. And yes, the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Absolutely, I agree completely with all of that. But there's something about sitting in that classroom or on the screen, if you can do it that way, and going through the regiment, the rigor, having to face the deadlines. <laughs> you know what I mean? Amen. Um, and, and having to submit yourself to that process. Uh, it's developmental to your soul. Now, it may not. Let me give me one more thing and I'm through with it. Um, it also will expose you to resources you would not ex encounter on your own. Uh, there are some resources that you're going to be exposed to in an academic process that you're just not going to find because we all have a wheelhouse and a space where we kind of, when we're thinking about books and, and, and things we want to read, uh, scholars we want to engage. We kind of have a, 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 a wheelhouse, but there are other scholars, there are other uh, um, books that school will make you buy uh, that will help you as a preacher, as a pastor, as a person, uh, as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's just, there ain't nothing wrong with school. Ain't, ain't, ain't nothing wrong. 
Ain't nothing wrong with school, never. It's not never wrong. That's what I'm trying to say. Amen. <laughs> yeah, what, what Dr. Pointer says, absolutely. I'm, I couldn't put it any better than, than that. There is, and I think one of the things you mentioned that kind of strikes me as so important is that school, that seminary, does introduce you to ideas, to resources, to things that you just would not necessarily have done on your own. You know, if, you know, left to, to I know you could look at me and say, well, I bet he doesn't even like desserts. Um, <laughs> you know, don't laugh so much now. <laughs> left, to, left to our own devices, we might be eating chocolate cake all the time. You know, but school disciplines you. It requires you to think about some things that you wouldn't necessarily have done. I, I thought of an example of uh, in our, our uh, master ministry program at CLAMP, um, one of the classes that's required is a class in Christian philosophy and, and talking about kind of different philosophical issues and things like that. And uh, I remember one of the students coming to me uh, at the end of that class saying, you know, at the beginning of this class, I hated it. And I thought, I'm never going to use any of this stuff. Yeah. Said, but one Wednesday evening in the church, they brought a young person to me who said, I'm struggling with this issue. Why does God allow good people to suffer? Right. And she said, the night before in our class, we had been talking about precisely that issue. And it was like God laid out a menu for me to be able to, to help minister to this young, uh, young man. And there are things like that that just happen, and they're not accidents. You know, God uses uh, the, that resource of school uh, and the discipline that it helps instill. Uh, you, you know, you talk about deadlines. You got a deadline every Sunday. <laughs> you know, uh, Sunday is is um, you know is one of those things that no matter whether you like it or not, it's going to come come around every every week. And so, but we have discipline, uh, and so school is another discipline. Uh, but it helps you. There are just so many, so many be benefits uh, that you get from that. And one of them, frankly, at a relational level, are the friendships you make. Yep. You develop uh, relationships, friends that are ongoing. And uh, I'm, I'm looking at Lonnie Slater, who was one of our students that did our D-Men D with us. And I suspect, Lonnie, there are people that you met in that program that are now lifelong friends. People that, you know... Uh, and it's just a, it's a wonderful relationship uh, building opportunity. Uh, it gives you one more person that you can call up on a Saturday night and say, you're not going to believe what these people did, <laughs> you know. Can I also add to, to as Dr. Dick was talking, it, it brought to mind the, how do you know what you know? So, you know, the Bible is the word of God. And yeah, I get that. But how do you know? So here's, I'm, I'm anti, you talk about Christian philosophy, I'm anti the Bible is the Bible for the Bible tells me so. I think if the Bible is the Bible, it can stand up to scrutiny and questions. And school challenges you to not just make these random claims that you have no forethought, historical, philosophical foundations for. Um, at least it should. Uh, and so I think one of the benefits of school is that it makes you, it challenges your preconceived notions and conclusions and makes you have to either put them in concrete or toss them to the wind. Uh, and I, I think, that's a, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's a benefit of school because you, you, you talk about a generation for whom there is an inherent distrust of scripture and the preacher. Uh, and so we don't, we can't appeal to inherent authority. I'm the preacher and this is the Bible. I have to establish that authority first in a way that connects with them. Paul at Mars Hill uh, is what I'm thinking of. Um, and that, that creates then um, a, a sense of trustworthiness, a, a, a sense of legitimacy as you begin to make claims about what people should do with their lives and their souls. Uh, and I think school helps in that way as well. Yeah. And, and kind of going along that line of what you just said, 
as pastors, we used to be able to rely on positional authority. That because you are the pastor, people therefore automatically granted you a certain level of authority. That's not there anymore. You know, there may be individual congregations where that may be the case, but in our, in our broader culture, it's not there. And so it is important to develop ourselves, to be as well prepared as we can, uh, which, which is one of the ways that a congregation can come to gain, we gain authority in a congregation and a trust level, that we have done the work. You know, if, I'm, if I have heart troubles, I, I like to know that my doctor has been to med school. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if, I, if, I, if somebody's going to sue me, I really want to know that my lawyer has been to law school. And, uh, and I, it helps uh, to know that uh, our pastor who stands in front of the congregation and proclaims God's word has done the hard work of study and preparation. So St. So Mark, Dr. Pointer, uh, is governed by elders, correct? Yes. So majority of our Baptist churches, especially in the African-American context, that's not the case. So let's just say I wanted to make that significant change in my church. I'm not trying to just limit it to elders, but when it comes to significant change, how can I lead significant change through the pulpit? Yes. <laughs> you have, it has to be taught. It has to be taught, my, again, one of my grandfather's sayings is sometimes you got to let people have your way. So you teach it, you teach it, you teach it, you teach it, you teach it. You have conversations about it, you teach it, you preach on it, you teach it, you show examples of it. Um, one, of the, one of the great things um, that, that my pastor told me was, hey, Philip, take your church to places where people are doing the things you want to do at, at your church. Everything is contextual. Nothing is cookie cutter. Uh, but, but exposure matters. Um, take them there. Take them to see another way, another facet, another level, another style. And, um, and do it until they say, well, pastor, why aren't we doing this? And then you say, y'all really want to do that? Well, if you say so, I guess you got to let people have your way. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we live in a microwave society, and I, as preachers and pastors, I know I'm guilty of it often as well. We, wanna, we, want, we want people to get it and do it and have it right away. We want to teach one lesson or preach one series or just because I'm the pastor, we're going to do this. Um, and that, that would be wonderful. God knows it would. And if you got a context where you can just say what you want to say and do what you want to do, then God bless you and let some drops now fall on me. But otherwise, teaching it at nauseum, you know, the old adage, they got to hear it seven times before they hear it one time, those kind of ideas. Um, uh, and then I think sometimes we forget to be patient with people and loving in their process. You know, Peter spent you know, three plus years with Jesus and stood at a fire and denied him. You know, um, we, we, you know, people need time to process some of the things uh, that, we, uh, that we want them to do. Um, the other thing is, I believe elders, specifically about the elders thing, I believe elders are biblical. By the way, my predecessor made that change before I got there, so hallelujah to the Lamb of God. And we love Stephen M. Arnold, uh, uh, right now for that, but uh, as, as I think about elders specifically, um, it, is, it, it is what I believe the Bible speaks of in terms of church government. I think the Bible uses the plurality of elders over and over again in the New Testament. There's very rarely the mention of a single leader, titular head in Scripture. It's dangerous for the leader and the people, um, and so accountability and, and, and camaraderie and leadership um, among God-ordained, uh, called-out leaders is, is critical. Um, but if your church isn't there yet, it doesn't mean God can't still use and bless the congregation with its current structure as you are teaching and developing 
whatever that change is you're trying to make. And so don't, uh, don't feel like your church or ministry is or cannot be effective because the change you're desiring is not happening as quickly as you would like it to. Um, you know, if you are standing and proclaiming God's truth faithfully, you have an effective church. If you, as the pastor, are proclaiming faithfully, you have an effective church. Um, the seeds are being sown, and God may be doing something underneath the soil. Roots develop before shoots, and so you may not see anything, but God, it may be going down in order to spring up. Yeah. At this last interim I just did, uh, midway through the interim, uh, they asked me to come meet with the pastor church committee, and uh, one of the mentions said, one of the thing ideas we've been talking about is, how about if we call a pastor, but you continue to come preach for us? <laughs> well, well, after getting up off the floor, um, I said, no. <laughs> uh, and I said, let me tell you why, because the pulpit is the pastor's number one tool to lead a congregation. It's the most important place you have. There are other things you do as a leader, but the one place that you most influence a congregation to lead them to where you believe God wants them to go is from the pulpit. I said, I said so frankly, I said, no matter who you call, if you call anybody decent, they will say no. <laughs> they wouldn't do that. But, but the pulpit is just such a critical leadership tool. And, and then, again, that's one of the reasons why we need to think strategically about what we're preaching, how we're preaching, because we are, we are impacting that congregation, not only for now, but for the future. You stay in a church a long time, you help shape that congregation. You know, they, they will tend to follow in the path that you establish for them. And so it's so important to think strategically about where, where should this congregation be, not just next month, but in the next decade. The way you mentioned this earlier, but uh, we want go to go to into it with a little more depth. What's the, why is it helpful to preach through a book of the Bible? Um, let me say up front, I don't think that's the only way to do expository preaching. I think, you know, a continual book series is a great way to do it. It's not the only way to do it. Now, the benefit of preaching, there are several benefits of preaching through books of the Bible. Number one, it helps develop biblical literacy in our congregations. It helps them to take at least a portion of Scripture and begin to really understand it at a deeper level than they would before. From the perspective of the preacher, it is a great benefit to you because, number one, you do your background study once. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can... I mean. Imagine preaching Isaiah this week and Genesis next week and Revelation, you know, just trying to get ready for it. The exegetical background would be such a, a pain. So, you know, if I'm going to be preaching, for example, the very first series I ever did as a young pastor was preach through the book of James. I thought, well, I'm going to take four weeks and preach through the book of James. <laughs> you can tell how young and naive I was at that point. You know, six months later, I, I finally, I, you know, I finally finished up that, that book. But I didn't have to go back and study the background over and over again. I was able to do that once and then be able to move. And so that's one of the things. It helps you save time. It also helps you save time that you're not pacing the floor every Monday saying, now what? You know, you know where you're going. Now, there are different ways to preach the books of the Bible. One is there's that verse by verse. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do chapter 3, verses 1 through 4a, and next week I pick up on verse, on verse 4b and go on. That's one way to do it. It's not the only way to do it. Uh, so, for example, when I most recently preached through the book of Acts, I didn't try to cover every single verse in the book of Acts. I picked out, uh, I did something, at least something from every chapter, but I picked out key passages that would help, you know, help, help me move that series forward, that help them to understand what God is doing in that particular uh, text. And so there are different ways to do that, but there are just some real benefits to you as a preacher to be able to do that. I'll tell you from a purely practical standpoint, um, resources 
you know, if I'm going to if I'm going to be preaching through a book of the Bible, I can aff- and I, I know I'm going to spend the next six months or three months or whatever in that particular book. It helps me to be able to justify spending some resources on good commentaries and material about that particular book, as opposed to I couldn't go out and buy commentaries if I'm preaching a different book of the Bible every every week. You know, I just can't justify going and spending those kind of resources. So that's a, another helpful uh, tool to be able to do that. But I just think there's great value in being able to to go to sleep on Sunday night, knowing where I'm going next Sunday. You know, you, you, you know that. Now, that doesn't mean there's not still hard work. Still got to do your exegesis. Still got to be thinking about that. But there's just, there is a lot of value. So there, there are different kinds. Now, there are different kinds of exposition. There's thematic exposition where, you know, for example, you might have a, you might want to decide, I really need to do a series on the family. Uh, now, that doesn't, that's not necessarily going to be done as a continuous exposition in a single book. Uh, but you can still, even though you thematically choose topics for the series, you can still do expository sermons by choosing a text for each one of those topics uh, that you're going to be dealing with. So, but for me, that kind of continuous exposition tends to be the default model. I'll do, I'll do a different model from time to time for different purposes, but otherwise, I love just being able to choose uh, a book. Not always a full book. You know, if, if you do a series on the Ten Commandments, you're doing a continuous exposition series. You're just taking a piece of the book. You do the Sermon on the Mount. You know, same kind of thing. So there's so many different ways to go about doing that. I spoke about the discipline piece earlier. Preaching through a book has challenges and advantages. The, the challenge is you don't get to skip the hard passage. Which is developmental for you as a preacher and developmental for the congregation. Um, you, you know, the, and the hard passages, you know, there are all kinds. There are kinds where the subject matter is sensitive. Uh, if you're going to preach the Romans, you're going to have to deal with Romans 1. Yeah. Got to deal with it. And you can't avoid it. Um, so you got You have to deal with those kinds of things. The the if you're gonna, uh, the, the those those you can't skip the hard passages. The challenge is, I think, you know, there was a movement some years ago, Doctor Didway, that said, you know, consecutive exposition through books was passe because people's attention span was too short to stay in there with a long series. And I don't know that that was ever true. I think people were just trying to be cool and do what was next, um, because people don't get bored through a book. The preacher might, but they're not, they're not, they're, you know, they're not, the, the scripture is not redundant within a book. Um, perhaps you can say that about Proverbs, but that's about it. Um, you're, you're not dealing with redundancies within a book of the Bible. What we tend to do is we tend to be redundant when we don't preach through books, we find pet subjects, pet ideas, Ben Warner's again, and we tend to talk about the same things from different passages because these are the things that are kind of our, our pet issues uh, or places where we feel safe. We stick with the same kind of genres of scripture because, again, those are the areas we feel safe. So there are challenges there. The advantage is, and, and Dr. Didway said it so, uh, so directly, it is the most direct way to build biblical literacy and spiritual maturity in your congregation. It bec- and here's, the, here's one of the great advantages, Pastor, is you talk about you know, teaching through change and things like that. When you come up on a passage that's something you need to address in your church, I didn't pick this passage this week. We just going through the book. And it's talking... This is, we just going through the book, and oops, here's a stewardship sermon. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, that kind of thing. It 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 it, it creates um, a, a a varied, healthy uh, spiritual diet for the congregation. My testimony at Saint Mark is, and my prior pastorate is. Uh, I tell people all the time, I'm best preaching through books, 
Um, people can hang in with long, extended series and exhibitions. We've done Romans. I preached through the Gospel of Mark. In fact, we were in Mark when COVID hit, and we stayed in Mark. Um, and then, you know, my testimony is, just frankly speaking, friends, um, in the sovereignty of God, it seems to be, especially if something social happens or as, as COVID was happening, uh, is happening, but as it first came on the scene, um, the passage for that week in the sovereignty of God happened to be the right passage to address what was happening in the culture at that time. Uh, because if you're prayerful in your preparation and your time of, of, of um, discovering God, what are we to say next? I, I believe God will lead you uh, in, in passages uh, through a book in the same way God can lead someone through varying passages uh, across the, the biblical landscape. The St. Mark question I get most often about my preaching is, Pastor, what's the next book? Pastor, what's the next book? And uh, this year we're going, we're doing Hebrews, and I'm super excited about uh, uh, doing Hebrews. I'm actually in Haggai now uh, for January, then we're starting Hebrews in February. And, and then there are practical considerations. For instance, uh, with Romans, with a long series like Romans, with a long series like, um, like Mark or with Hebrews, we'll do a spring semester, as it were, and a fall semester. So we'll do the first half of Hebrews through April, summer we'll do some thematic expositions and then we'll come back in September and take it through uh, the end of November those kinds of ideas um, and 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 the people people will hang in there with you again if the application is clear uh, they, they'll hang in they'll hang in there and then they will begin to develop a, a hunger and a thirst in the same way they desire I tell I say all the time the, the best way to ruin a church is to get them used to exposition because then they don't want anything else. You know what I mean? They, if you start, if you, if you are a clear, faithful expositor of Scripture, then that is what they expect every time someone reads a passage. Are you going to explain that passage that you read, please? <laughs> and that it, it creates um, that kind of diet and healthy, uh, healthy ethos among the congregation. I, I commend it. I say preach through a book. And you can, you can if, you, if it's foreign to you, you know, I recommend things like starting with a, a smaller, uh, do Ruth. Ruth is a fun book to preach through. Uh, it, it's, it's fully redemptive. You have the character arc of, of, of Naomi's recovery from uh, loss and, and self-identification with bitterness. You have uh, the, the clear messianic figure of Boaz. Uh, you, you see the faithfulness of Ruth. The, Ruth is, uh, you know, such a clear picture of true conversion. There's so many themes there. You see relational themes, family themes. Um, ultimately, you, you get to say, and then Boaz begat. And then, you know, you can shut it down if you want to do it all like that, you know. And then Boaz begat, you know, those kind of things. So I think things like that, I, preaching through a smaller epistle, uh, Colossians is a great one. The supremacy of Christ. If you're just starting preaching through books at your church, Colossians is a phenomenal one. The supremacy of Jesus Christ, the head of the body, uh, proclaiming that. And then the practical implications of that as he gets into chapters three and four, I think are, are those are great places to start if you're just asking. I wouldn't start in a long book necessarily. Um, I wouldn't try to do a verse by verse through Leviticus to start. That's just, I wouldn't recommend it. But it, you made a good observation about that many of the longer books have some natural spots where you could stop, come back later, then pick up the next section. Yes, sir. I mean, for example, the book of Genesis just has natural points where you, you deal with, you know, creation as a series. And then you can come back and deal with the fall and sin. And then you can deal with, you know, Abraham, uh, Joseph. You know, those are natural kind of series. I, frankly, I like biographical series yes. where you can take a character like Absolutely. Joseph. Absolutely. Yeah, and be able to, you know, deal with that. And so there are ways to take a longer book and still be able to, to do it. But 
allowing. There are challenges of, of attention span. Um, I remember uh, both W. Criswell and Jerry Vines, who were, you know, were famous for these lengthy series. You know, W. Criswell spent, you know, 800 years preaching through, you know, consecutively through uh, books of the Bible. But in it, when I interviewed him in his later years, he admitted that he had started doing small, shorter series because he was having a harder time holding attention for such a lengthy time uh, on air. But that's where you can then find those natural breaking points and divide a longer book into several uh, different series uh, that are available. And I, and I think, Dr. Wait, that that some of that is how we package, um, and that's a, this is a marketing communication kind of conversation at this point, not necessarily a preaching one, um, but you speak about those natural divisions in those books, um, those thematic sections, uh, especially if you're dealing with epistles, generally Paul is going to give you a nice clean division, Genesis, the ten, those ten uh, Toledoths that are natural, th these are the generations of, that are neat natural divisions, those kinds of things. Um, and each of those can be packaged as a series themselves uh, and communicated as a, as a new series, so to speak. Uh, and I think that they're, they're creative ways uh, to do those kinds of things, to, to recreate interest and, uh, and uh, quicken people's uh, 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 desire to hear what's coming next. Dr. Point, I have a question, then I have a question to close for the both of you. Dr. Point, you uh, pretty much have a theme throughout the year at St. Mark, and you do that five years at a time. Can you kind of give us some insight into how that works? Uh, that, how does, it, how does it work? How much time we got? So uh, <laughs> with, with, with my elders and uh, our staff, uh, particularly our, our creative kind of team at the, at the church, uh, we begin to pray through, you know, any any business person model would say a one, three, five, sometimes a seven and ten year plan uh, for an organization. Uh, so what is what, what where do we want to be in five years? What does it look like? What are the, what are the areas of emphasis and adjustment? Uh, and so we begin to kind of pray and think through that. Uh, in our context at St. Mark, and that's how that five-year uh, uh, process um, of laying out vision came to be. We uh, then saying, like, where do we want to be in five, then birthed theming each year uh, for the sake of kind of reigniting. You know, the new year is a great time to take advantage of that new energy people expecting or desiring change and wanting to do something different. So it, it became a time to really introduce a theme, introduce a concept for the sake of that year uh, that would move us toward that five-year goal that we have established. And so those, uh, that's how that came to be in the first place. What you then see visually and communicatively from the team is our team effort um, to make that theme for that year something short, catchy, snazzy, so that all of our graphics, uh, uh, if you follow me on uh, Instagram or follow our church Instagram or get our emails, you'll see our preparing for worship every week that goes out Friday at 9 a.m. with uh, sermon text, sermon title, songs we're singing, but that's gonna have that, it's gonna have the visual of what the theme is for that year. So while we're constantly communicating that theme, um, the, the intent, again, is to communicate ad nauseum, to, 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 to ensure that there is no way you can hang around us for two months, three months, four months, and not know what we're trying to do this year. You, you know the direction, the vision, of the church for this calendar year and ultimately building toward that five-year goal uh, so that in our, our end-of-the-year end of document, our annual report, um, it tells you where we are in that five years. Uh, so uh, this is year three of this five-year cycle. 
uh, and it will kind of highlight this is year, this is the year we've come out of, this is the year we're entering into, and then this is what we did in year one of this cycle, this would happen in year two, and we'll uh, see what happens in four and five, those kinds of ideas. Um, it's, it's just a healthy way to communicate. It also um, helps us to think through what we're preaching and teaching for the year. Uh, if the intent, if, the, if, if we feel as our elders and then engaging our staff, if we feel God is leading us this year to emphasize worship uh, in a holistic sense of absolutely what we intend to do in the corporate gathering when we are together, uh, but also to get people to grasp that all of life is worship. We are presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, as our spiritual act of worship. Um, then for us, Hebrews connects to that clearly as we compare Christ to the old system of worship, to angels, to Moses, to the old covenant priesthood, uh, that he's worthy of clinging to and ultimately worthy of what 13 gets to, which is by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise continually. That's the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Uh, that's, that's, that helps to drive then what we're preaching through and teaching through in, um, in the year. And so that's a, um, that's a short version of how it works, I guess. Um, if you got any other questions, I'd be glad to try to help. So we got about two minutes left, so you get a minute apiece. What would a younger, what would a, what would you tell a younger Michael Dilway from your experiences today? What would you tell a younger Philippona? One minute apiece. I'd go back and tell myself, pray more, study more. Don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, as a young pastor, young preacher, the tendency is to, I can do it. I can handle it. And the reality is we'll be stronger if we seek help and counsel from others. What would I tell a younger Philip Horner? How much younger? Am I just pastor, just starting to pastor, just, just starting start to preach? If I'm just starting to pastor, 24, 25. yes, I started at 24. I would tell that guy, take better care of yourself. Um, mentally, physically, relationally, build more soul-filling habits um, so that you don't, you're not always empty in your private moments. That's what I would tell that guy. And um, I, again, I go back to, I was, I was, I'm blessed to have great legacy. My father would tell us, the best thing you can give God is a fresh mind and a rested body. I would say that to that young guy. And, and can I just say, you have, that, you have been blessed with the smartest father and grandfather. Right. <laughs> really awesome. really awesome. yeah. Brilliant, guys. Thank you for your time, both of you guys. Thank you.